Welcome to Ingenious, a podcast brought to you by Engineers Without Borders at the University of Bristol. At Ingenious, we explore the future by talking to the pioneering engineers of today. This episode, Gabriel and I spoke to Alistair Boswell, an engineer and associate director who is currently leading Arab's intelligent mobility schemes in the UK. With over 20 years' experience in the field, Alistair's worked on a huge range of projects, including a recent role supporting Highways England with their national rollout of electric vehicle charge points. It was fantastic to hear about both the opportunities and challenges that are on the horizon as we make the switch from internal combustion to electric vehicles. We also spoke about shared and autonomous vehicles and the crucial role they may play in future transport networks, reducing individual car ownership and helping us move towards a zero-carbon future. As always, we started by asking Alistair to introduce himself and describe how he got where he is today. Hi, I'm I'm Alistair Boswell and I'm an Associate Director in Arup um, and I lead our intelligent mobility business in the UK. So Arup's a company of, you know, a global company of sort of 16,000 consultants based in all geographies. Um, I look after the UK market primarily, um, but it does extend to the Middle East and Africa and India as well, although you know, we don't do too much work over there. Um, and intelligent mobility is a range of services that we've kind of clustered together, um, all about making improvements to transport through the use of data and technology, um, basically. So in my business, I've got uh, seven different work strands that we um, we call different portfolios, effectively, for, for the work we do. Um, those are low emission mobility, so anything to do with electric vehicles, hydrogen vehicles, fleets, networks, you know, infrastructure solutions. Um, we work in mobility pricing solutions. So that's about charging people for, you know, things like congestion zones or tolled infrastructure or clean air zones, that kind of thing. Uh, we work in conti- uh, connected and autonomous vehicles. So um, making better use of those emerging technologies on our existing road networks. Um, We work in systems and operations. So that's more about looking at the holistic view of transport networks and the control systems behind them, the roadside infrastructure that's needed to support um, technology solutions, primarily on roads. We we do stuff in maritime rail as well, things like that. Um, Then we've got a portfolio that's called data and tools and that's all about really harvesting traffic transport data to its fullest effect and using it within transportation solutions we then work in active travel solutions so those are um, quite an elaborate term for walking and cycling basically but it does include micro mobility solutions and things like that and then finally we've got a portfolio which is um, about mobility as a service which is all about shared transport and transport solutions in that space so i guess you know my team isn't massive at the moment um we've we've got 40 people in the uk um consultants and engineers all working on those kind of you know those those kind of projects all around those themes um and i suppose the whole the whole thrust of what we do is is just about using technology, using data more intelligently to improve networks. And over the past few years, the the, um, the focus of our industry has um, switched enormously, I think, from um, 
an industry which really was looking at trying to get, you know, trying to get the most out of our networks in terms of capacity, get the most through those networks, you know, road building schemes with, you know, technology on those roads to to really improve throughput. The focus is now about sustainable travel and using networks more sensibly with the whole picture of, you know, zero carbon and the importance of that on climate change and all of those kind of things. That's really what's influencing the business. So I suppose my job is essentially leading that business in the UK to to deliver solutions that make a difference to society. But sustainability is at the core of the Arab strategy. And that's that's what we focus our business around. Did you... How did you kind of come into this line of work? Did you was it something you were always passionate about, or was it something you discovered gradually? Um, completely truthfully, I just dropped into it. So I graduated from um, Warwick University, in, and I did mechanical engineering, a master's in mechanical engineering. For um, and at the end of my course, I just wanted to get a job locally because that's where I wanted to settle. And I fell into a um, a small consultancy firm in Coventry who did what at the time was called intelligent transport systems, basically. So that was, it was all about roadside infrastructure, installing CCTV, enforcement systems, uh, message signs, detection systems on roads primarily. Um, And that was really great. You know, it was a really great start to a career, getting involved, very hands-on design work, site work, those kind of things. It was brilliant. But it was complete, complete fluke. I never had any particular interest in it. And actually, when I started in the industry, I think it wasn't a very well-known industry anyway. You know, it was quite it was quite under the radar. You know, if, if somebody said, what do you do? And you said, oh, I work in intelligent transport. I don't think anyone would have known what it is. I don't think very many people know what it is now, but it's certainly got a more, very much more prominent, um, it is a f- very much more prominent in all, all forms of transport now, the use of data, the use of tech. But at the time, it was, it was slightly niche. Um, but yes, I mean, I suppose for me, I've always been passionate about the environment and I've always been impassion- passionate about sustainable solutions and things like that. So the, the way that the industry has gone pleases me enormously. You know, it feels like my career is actually uh, making more of a difference than it ever has at the moment. So um, from that per- perspective, I think it's really, it, it ended up to be a good fluke to get into this industry, I think. When... Um so when you first joined, was the whole mentality around travel in general very different to how it is today? And what would you say are the, the biggest sort of mindset shifts that have happened? It, it was, I mean, it was enormously different. So when I, when I started, um, not many of us had mo- our mobi- our mo- mobile phones. That's how old I am now. It feels disgraceful. But um the and I think just the the prominence of of data in transport and readily available data and you know the fact that everybody's mobile phone is giving out data all the time and is trackable just it, it gives you such a richer environment to actually you know come up with solutions because you know so much more about what's going on on the in, on the transport networks and you can do so much more by you know pushing data out through you know 
through websites or through apps or whatever, push push data out to people to make informed choices about their journeys. Um, when we started out on this kind of work, it was, you know, the only facility we really had that we could push data out in a reliable fashion was on variable message signs on motorways, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, something, a couple of lines of text saying congestion ahead, you know, that kind of message. Um, and it had a limited impact and it, but it did have some impact. And um, I think just as technology has naturally improved and communications networks have improved, people have recognized the, the real benefits of, you know, of what you can achieve in, in this industry. So it's, it's massive mindset change. I think, you know, the whole, I think rail road, maritime air, we're all very, very different industries. And to some extent that, you know, they are still separate. They've all got their same separate challenges and things, but the one common factor is, is data. And the one common factor is people using that transport and that data and it kind of connects it all up and that's really I, I think the mindset really is change, changing enormously in lots of parts of the business um, I think I think in the highways industry there's a huge um, amount of pressure on road building schemes and things like that now whereas if you went back 20 years it was all about road building and you know improving network capacity you know that that kind of thing Today, everyone's looking at the carbon angle. Everybody's saying, you know, why are we building more roads? You know, why don't we make better use of what we've got and actually improve the the users of networks? You know, make them make the right choices for the environment and for, for you know, everybody in it, rather than build, build, build. So there's a there's a massive change in the, what I'll, what I'll term the, the civils aspect of the industry, I think, informed by the fact, you know, all the things, great things you can now do with technology to to improve the way people move about. So, do you see a shift in the, you know, the numbers of people that are moving about um, in a post-pandemic world? Yes. Well, yeah. Disappointingly, I think the stats are getting back to uh, pre-pandemic levels. I mean, that's. I mean, the pandemic's been pretty horrendous hasn't it in in all in all, almost all ways but it did cut transport enormously and i mean for me that's got that's a massively positive move i mean what we've um we've did a piece of work or we're still doing a piece of work for the department for transport um which basically um helped them collate uh, transport data from all local authorities, local transport authorities, or a good proportion of them anyway. And that's what, one of the things um, which is quite strange is that pre-pandemic, there was no national collation of data done. All the authorities were collating their own data and using it for their own purposes. And then you have you know, national bodies like um, Highways England or National Highways, as they're called now, um, looking after the country, but they have one data set, local authorities had a different data set, et cetera, et cetera. DFT had access to some of it. But this piece of work we did with with DFT just collated a huge amount, of, you know, a vast amount of, um, of data. And we were, through the pandemic, publishing weekly digests 
that were informing, you know, what the guys on the telly were saying about, you know, what was going on in the pandemic. Um, and just looking at the levels of traffic and obviously it dropped enormously, but the, um, I mean, the pattern of transport has changed hugely, hasn't it? I mean, the amount of delivery vehicles, local delivery vehicles we see on our networks now, you know, now as opposed to pre-pandemic is, you know, huge. Just the, I mean, you know how many times a, a van pulls up outside somebody on your street, you know, it's it's completely off the scale of what it used to be. Um, and I mean, for me, that kind of, um, you know, sort of logistics industry taking over the transport industry is probably where, where things should be heading. Um, I think we should be encouraging less, less people movement unless it's done in a sustainable way. So I think, I think the stats are something, I think greenhouse gases, it's something like 23% of all emissions in the UK or something like that are from surface transport. And then of that 23%, it's something like 70% is from cars, basically. And you just think, you know, that there's such a huge dent to be made by getting people out of cars and into more sustainable modes. So, you know, it, it could still be cars, but shared cars, or it could be getting them onto rail. It could be a better set of policies and infrastructure for micromobility. It could just be people being a little bit less lazy and getting out and walking and cycling more because the, the amount of short journeys that are done in cars, again, you know, you'll know from, you know, looking at just obs- observing what's going on each day, how how busy the kids run that school has got again and things like that. And you just think, oh, it's just so disappointing that we had a big reset with the pandemic and it's just creeping back to where we were before. It's not it's not quite there, you know, that I think I think what we'll never see coming back is the peak demand hours. So AM and PM peaks used to, you know, the all these um flow curves that you see of 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 peak hours of transport and things during the day. You used to have a two or three hour peak in the morning, a two or three peak hour peak in the afternoon, and that's when so much congestion happened and you know it was horrendous. I think people's ways of working now are very, very different. And those peaks will never quite become peaks again because so many people can remote work. They'll avoid those peaks naturally if their employers are flexible enough to allow them, if their roles allow them to. And I think a lot of people do have that flexibility. And I know for one, we, we've we introduced um, uh, a flexible working um, thing called um, Work Unbound now. And the policy of that is basically we've gone from people being in the office almost five days a week pre-pandemic. And now that that new standard for us is saying two days a week is probably the best mix to get, you know, to get a bit of team interaction and, and, uh, but not overstress yourself with transport, keep transport to a minimum so and we're not unusual in that you know i think a lot of companies are who are able to you know who don't need people in, in a factory or you know in a shop or whatever but a lot of professional you know industry companies um i think have the have the flexibility to change the way they work so i don't think we'll ever see the peaks that we've seen pre-pandemic but the volumes of traffic unfortunately might 
might stay similar until we really get some stuff going in terms of modal shifts and um, shared transport. So on that shared mobility front, um, where do you see the future of public transport outside of London? Well, so, I mean, public transport's a, a, a really difficult nut to crack, I think. Um, and it, it, I think quite a lot of it comes down to affordability, but I think also a lot of it comes down to um, beha- just behaviours of people. Um, so, so many people are used to having their car and having the comfort of getting out of their house walking a step or two to their car, sitting in their nice, comfortable car, and off we go. And that's the, that's what we've really got to address before public transport can become, you know, the overarching kind of default for people. It's that, it's that behavioral piece for people. But I mean, to, to be frank, you know, it's, it's very um, inconsistent nationally, public transport. So, you know, the, the big cities have good transport networks, you know, that, London do loads of great stuff. Manchester, a good example of, you know, free free city centre buses and, you know, the tram network and things. And, you know, you kind of look at trams and you think, well, they're pretty old hat, aren't they? But they're a good good city centre solution, you know. Um, and, you know, the people that use them really like them. Um, but it's it's few and far between. And I think the, the you know, rural um, authorities and stuff really have an issue with public transport because it's so in, infrequent. Um, and I think that's where a blend of traditional public transport and the shared mobility piece sort of comes into its own a little bit. So, you know, getting people to you know, to share transport with their neighbours and, and do all of that kind of, there's a kind of community angle to it, I think, in terms of just getting people to, you you know, to share an Uber, to, you know, those those kind of things um but they are you know they're behavioral changes where people expect to own and own a car and enjoy that car and i think there are, there are things coming that will push us away from that model naturally i think so connected on autonomous vehicles are an interesting piece in that whole you know mess of what the future might look like um and Ownership of connected autonomous vehicles is another thing. You know, they are at the moment anything that's got autonomy and, you know, that sort of side of things is increasing in price. In the future, they may be extremely expensive to buy and nobody will know how to maintain them. So there's there's lots of different ownership models or rental models around those kind of facilities, which might encourage more shared transport solutions rather than everybody owning a vehicle i think um and i think the um the autonomous and electric vehicles act or something that was introduced in 2018 probably goes some way to setting the setting you know us on the right route for that but that combined with public transport improvements i think is you know is really key um and public transport just needs it it needs to be it's a bit of chicken and egg isn't it it's it's not very affordable, especially if you look at rail travel. Rail travel is disproportionately expensive and puts lots of people off from doing it because it's because of that. But you've got to get enough people wanting to use it to be able to, you know, change the way that the, um, you know, the the network's used. So I don't know. It is difficult, but I think it, I I honestly believe that it starts with some harsh policies to 
and legislation changes to influence behavior changes because people don't do what they should do unless they're hit with a stick a little bit. Do you think these changes will be led by the public or private sectors? So I think private sector um, is where all the technology advancements and all of the capability will come from. But without the public sector setting the framework for you know, the, those businesses to operate, it just won't happen. So I do believe it. it starts with public sector. It starts with legislation. It starts with policies and it starts with, you know, encouragement, I suppose. So part of what we've been involved with over the last few years has been helping different clients look at how to encourage uptake of electric vehicles. And that that's a really and electric vehicle charging infrastructure is where we've kind of focused quite a lot of our our efforts, and that's an interesting one because when do people buy an electric vehicle? It's only you know the early adopters of technology that have started off with an electric vehicle and are willing to risk not being able to charge in you know in return for the excitement they get out of being an early adopter. You know, but as if we get if we you know, the more mature we get with the, you know, with the uptake of electric vehicles, it's going to come, you know, it, I mean, it is pretty commonplace now, but there's got to be a huge charging net, charging infrastructure network out there to facilitate the uptake of EVs. So what a lot of local authorities and our clients are trying to do is work out how they get more electric vehicle charge points installed in their region. So we work with Highways England and we work with Transport for Wales and we've worked with Sheffield and a few others to try and come up with some strategies to work out when do, how far do they go in terms of spending public money on essentially private sector suppliers, um, basically pump priming the, you know, the industry. So private sector. We'll look at it. Does a business case exist to install a charge point there? No, because there's not enough electric vehicles. So I'm not going to start. I'm not going to put a charge point in in that location. Okay. Well, so nobody in that region is going to buy an electric vehicle because they haven't got a charge point to charge it up in. So it comes down to public sector to say, we're going to put a bit of money in here. So there's no risk to putting a charge point in there. You put a charge point in there. And once we've got enough charge points, people are going to have the vehicles and everybody's going to be happy. But it does it does kind of start with public sector because private just reacts to business case, what's going to return on, on profit. So in how's your company and your work approached sort of the uptake of electric vehicles? Have you got any examples of what's worked really well and what maybe hasn't? I think it's probably a bit early to say what's worked well and what hasn't, to be honest. So the projects that we've we've been involved with were, um, so the projects, I suppose, yeah, Highways England, we helped them with a national rolled out of charge points. But that that approach was, I mean, it was a really good step in the right direction for, for Highway, Highways England to do because they're a national road operator. They've got no real responsibility for the fueling of vehicles and things like that. You know, they've got to run a network. 
but they want their network to have more electric vehicles on it. They don't want it to be, you know, um, a concern. So there's this range anxiety thing, isn't there? When you're on a motorway, you've got huge lengths of, you know, road when you can't physically get off and you, you want to know that you're going to be able to charge somewhere. So the program was make sure that anywhere on their strategic road network, you have a charge point within 20 minutes, I think was our criteria or something. So that that involved, you know, a fairly large rollout of charge points all over the network to just set a base level, which is good. And that, I mean, that's a good starting point, but it's not going, you know, people aren't going to buy electric vehicles on the basis that, you know, we've installed some charge points nationally, but it's a starting point to set set the agenda, I suppose. And then Transport for Wales are doing something very similar now, but they've got an even harder ask really because the majority of the Welsh network is so rural that you know there's just not the there's just not the amount of uh, volume of traffic or the volume of EVs in that traffic to really warrant it so again i think they're both going to be good priming projects to for the industry um but i i suppose and, and similar is true of Sheffield so they're all they're all kind of similar things. Um, we're we're currently working with Transport for London on a slightly different piece of work, which is um, they're they're looking at electric vehicle charge hubs, so big centres where there are a large number of charge points all in one location where people can go and know that they'll get a charge, and reusing you know, land that's currently not made best use of, converting it into, you know, uh, something which is a bit of a an experience to go to and maybe connected to other forms of transport. So you can, you know, close connections to rail, close connections to whatever it may be, but, you know, something a bit more multimodal in its approach. And I think those charging hubs in city environments will be a real key. And I think, the you know, the broader term, is mobility hubs, I suppose, and that's where the interface between different modes comes in and making people's journeys easier. So they're all good ideas, but I, you know, what's worked well? That's that's always the problem in this industry. You never really have enough time. Technology and stuff does not stay still long enough for you to be able to say that solution has really done a great job and it's been in there for twenty five years. And it smashed it, returned all of its, you know, all the benefits it was meant to. Because the next best thing is always coming along. So actually assessing technology schemes and mobility projects that use technology is quite quite tough. Um, but as a company, I think we're doing, you know, we are doing a lot. And, um, you know, we've got internal expectations that by 2030 we're... Um, uh, carbon neutral and things like that. So we've got all the right policies in place as, a, as an organisation and we're doing stuff, you know, our offices have charge points for staff to use and things like that. But as I, you know, I don't think that's anything particularly unusual, um, but it's, it's trying to influence the clients and trying to influence the local authorities and the, the industry as a whole to do more. Um, but yeah, I don't, what's worked well, I don't know, you know, We'll see how things turn out in a few years' time, I guess. Yeah, I suppose that's always the way with, like you say, something that's emerging so rapidly. Um, you've mentioned micro 
micro travel and shared shared travel a couple of times if you could expand on on what that means that yeah so i mean micro mobility i i've seen different definitions for this but the way so some people in in, in micro mobility include walking and cycling and some people do not include those they call them active travel but it's all different compartments of similar stuff so what i see micro mobility as is solutions primarily in an urban environment that can replace car journeys easily. So it's, it's, it's ways to enable people to get around urban centres without using traditional internal combustion engine cars, you know. And so e-scooters are, a, you know, a typical example um, electric bikes, another you know example. Um, th- these these kind of solutions are what we would we would term as micro mobility. The problem with e-scooters is that they you know the legislation around them is really foggy at the moment, and you know they're only legal on certain roads if you've rented it from a authorised rental company, you know and. But you know the reality is you go out any any time during the day and you'll find you know I don't know ten people whizzing about on their own ones wherever the hell they fancy. So, um, and I think they are you know they are definitely viable forms of transport to replace the car in a city environment in a town environment where short duration journeys, you know. It, it just makes a lot of sense, but what we've got to get right is the legislation around them. And I know there's, you know, there's there's big assessments going on as to how safe they are and things like that. But I don't. I think the safety angle can be sorted out with some investment in decent policy that actually says this is where you can use them, and you can use them because we've set aside some space for them. You know, so th- this lane of this road that you used to use for a car. Tough luck. You can't use it for a car anymore. You're going to use it for an e-scooter or an e-bike or, you know, one of those forms of transport. But that that requires some really hard decision making and some some politicians to, you know, to basically put their necks on the line for some of this, which always comes quite slow. So, um, but that, yeah, micromobility is all that that kind of stuff, making use of, of things which are, are more sustainable. Although I don't know if e-scooters really are more sustainable or not, because I've heard the battery life on them can be a bit shoddy, and therefore they're almost like a throwaway, you know, throwaway item. So the solution's got to be right as well. But I think I think the idea of micro mobility, its purest sense, is is good. Um, the other part of that was shared travel, wasn't it? So um, I mean, lots of people um, term it as mobility as a service as well. Um, so this is. This is about using forms of transport which you don't own and you actively share with other people, I suppose. So again, just trying to get away from single occupancy car ownership, you know, which is the biggest bugbear of um, road travel, really, you know. And there's been a lot of schemes in the past, you know, saying sort of, you know, you can only use this lane if you've got more than two people in your vehicle. Those kind of things were trying to achieve the same goals as shared mobility. But now you've got such a rich data environment to allow people to, you know, hook up and work out how to do a journey together. I think that 
there's just loads of loads of potential. But again, it's there's not a lot of action in the space, you know, and and part of it comes down to individual transport authorities trying to do the best that they can with limited budgets, but not as part of a joined up national thing. So you'll find different transport authorities around the country are all doing slightly different things and pushing the industry in a slightly different direction based on maybe their local preferences and how much money they have available to spend. And these are organisations which do not have a lot of of money to spend. You know, uh, local authorities are stretched. You know, they could easily spend their annual budgets just on repairing potholes, and they don't. (laughs) They try and do loads more. Um, So we have potholy roads for that reason. But I I think that's where, you know, central government has another massive role to play, really, and just in setting some of the you know national agendas and, and making sure that appropriate budgets are put in the appropriate places um but but i mean private industry will will provide the solution once the once the infrastructure and the policy is there you know there's a huge amount of interest in in this space new new companies springing up left right and center Mm. You mentioned you worked internationally. Do you think there's any national leaders that are doing better in these spaces of um, new and emerging technologies to address these issues um, around the world? So any countries that are ahead of us? Yes. Well, I mean, the different places do different things really well. So um, I think um, China are doing amazing things with um electric vehicles you know that they have the you know the most manufacturing and most automotive uh manufacturers entering the marketplace i suppose with with electric vehicles and they i think uh i read a statistic relatively recently which i'll get horribly wrong but it's something like 70% of electric buses globally are in china something like you know something ridiculous like so that they've really, you know, taken on board some changes, and I mean, some countries are easier politically to to make national changes, you know, uh, just because of the way they're set up, I suppose. And I'm not condoning the, one political system over another, but um, certain things happen easier in some areas rather than others. But I think you know they're doing some great stuff, and you know they they introduce some stuff in their cities around. Um, limiting the number of vehicles so you know they said um basically nobody's allowed to buy a new car i think it was something like this this is slightly wrong but you're not allowed to buy a new car in this city register a new car in this city unless somebody else hands back a car so we're going to have the same number of cars except if you buy an electric vehicle and then you can have one yeah so big tough decisions like that really do have an impact and as a result you know they're they're making some great strides in the in the electric vehicle space um so that that's really you know good i think um there's several european cities that are doing some great stuff in terms of um active travel solutions and things like that so copenhagen's got some great stuff going on in terms of cycle lanes that have you know that are kind of integrated to 
um, traffic light system. So Glosa is a system which basically, as people approach traffic lights, they change for them. And it gives you a countdown to how, you know, to when the green light's going to be ready so you can judge your speed into them. But basically what they've done is they've integrated it um, with the cycle network and given cycle priority. So, you know, there's some good, there's some really good stuff there. And you you think, um, you look at Copenhagen as a city and you think, oh, we always say that people in the UK don't cycle because of the weather. And you think they get some grotty weather, but they're, you know, they're making use of their cycle networks way better than us and their, their infrastructure is way, way better. Um, so yeah, there's, there's places like that. Um, where was it? Was it Melbourne? I think during lockdown, Melbourne converted loads of their roads in the city centre to um, uh, to walking and cycling, and I think have made the decision not to convert lots of them back. Um, so, but again, all these things that I'm talking about here are, are things that are driven by policy. You know, places do well if the policy is set right, and the UK has excellent policy on a number of things. You know, so we are. As a as a country, we we are, you know, at the forefront of most areas. Um, but yeah, I'd say China's one to look at. Australia do some good stuff, and you know, some of the European um, cities are you know have got exemplar things going on. Um, I wouldn't say there's one clear, outstanding leader in the space, though. You know, it's kind of it is it is a global thing i suppose the surprise really is that i don't don't really see the us leading much in this space you know then i think maybe maybe some of it comes the uk has always been good in this space originally because we are a small island with a lot of population so we are population dense and a lot of the other countries do not have the same pressures on their transport networks as we do so i think we're forced to you know to make changes just because of the size we are um, whereas places like the US and Australia, you know, don't have the same density issues and they can continue to build at the cost of the environment. How, because um, obviously at the moment, electric vehicles are very expensive and sort of how do you think policy-wise we can make a statement that will force people to change without pricing out whole segments of the community from even like from being able to travel or yeah. or get to work. Well, it is a re- really weird dynamic at the moment, isn't it? Because only the top top percentile of earners can afford an EV at the moment, but then when they do get that EV, it's extre- it's so much cheaper to run, it's ridiculous, you know? So basically we're rewarding the most, you know, the richest in society. Um, by allowing them to save money in, you know, it, it's really odd, but the capital costs of EVs are, are you know, a bit of a killer. Um, I mean, that will come down, you know, all, all tech pricing comes down. Um, but realistically, um, that's, you know, that's all going to be set by the automotive sector. It's going to depend on, on how fast their tech can progress and how quickly they can reduce their, um, you know, their overheads with these things. But I suppose one of the keys there is just the the number of new competitors they're getting in that space. You know, so many new entrants to the market 
in the automotive sector are going to going to push prices down. Um, several Chinese manufacturers are coming in with luxury. I mean, I can't can't remember what the manufacturers are called, you know, but they're they're coming in with luxury products, which are a fraction of the price of you know your Teslas and you know that kind of stuff. So, I think we'll see a shift to more more affordable. Um, but I think part of it comes down to infrastructure as well. I think the I think the big issue is home charging for me, um, and the percentage of um, residential that actually have access to a front drive or you know something like that or car park or whatever that they can actually charge at home is is not that great you know um i live on a terrace street myself so you know i've only got the space in front of my house which i could use and currently you know i i think there's a big barrier to people knowing they can park outside their house and use their home charger in that instance so i think Oh, yet again, might come down to some policy around, you know, can you have an allocated car parking space outside your house, which is actually yours on a public street, you know? But I think so much of the population do live in similar, you know, residential situations that I think there's got to be something done there to equalise it. And, you know, then you're creating less barriers. But I think I think the capital cost of EVs you know, we'll we'll see that come down considerably, just as as you know, battery technology improves and becomes more, you know, more readily available, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's it's definitely going to come down, but when where the tipping point is, I don't know. But um, infrastructure, I think, is another important consideration to have, you know remove blockers to people taking those EVs. Do you think the the ownership model is the is the one that will win in the electric vehicle market. Um, you touched briefly on congestion as well, and I wonder yeah. whether or not that will be an issue if um, electric vehicle ownership is pushed. Well, so, I mean, I, I think that um, the electric vehicles and shared mobility are a really good combination. I mean, you see car clubs becoming more... Um, electric vehicle dominated all the time at the moment don't you you know so many of them flashing around and i think you know a car club can afford a you know an ev that other people can't afford it can look after it and give it the maintenance that it needs that other people might be a bit skeptical about um and it open opens the it opens the opportunity up doesn't it to to people who don't have an ev but it does mean again that these I mean, the solutions are all big city based, aren't they? You know, a car car clubs only really exist in the big urban centres because that's where the majority of people are going to share vehicles. Because there's a there's a push, isn't you know? There's a it, it's undesirable to own a car in a city that you've got to park and you know get around in. So you try your other forms of transport first, but occasionally we'll need to use um, a shared vehicle and. It works in those situations, but again, I, I don't think the um, I don't think car clubs have been pushed enough. I think you know they are they are a good solution, and as long as they get their you know their maintenance regimes right, and you're picking up a car which is equal in you know niceness to what you would have you know at home, and isn't 
full of somebody else's crisp packets, then, you know, it's something which is viable for people, isn't it? Um, but yeah, it, they need to be proven. And again, it probably comes down to a bit of policy around, you know, making it tougher to own a vehicle, I think. Um, and part of this is going to be going to be driven by how the government tax people going forward. So I, I don't know what the latest stats on um, vehicle excise duty are, but it's, you know, something, you know, the biggest um, contributor to um, fuel duty by masses is obviously petrol and diesel, isn't it? And by 2030, we're not, we're going to have banned the sales of internal combustion engine vehicles. So it's all from that point onwards, it will be electric or hydrogen or whatever. But then what well, the sales of petrol and diesel are going to plummet, aren't they? And where where does the government then tax um, to get, you know, to get enough money to run the country? So, um, it, yeah, I think I think those kind of things will influence people. So it might be that there, I mean, there are options, aren't there? there there's some sort of vehicle ownership tax that says if you're going to own a vehicle, you're going to pay through the nose for it. At the moment, road tax is neither here nor there, really, is it? You know, nobody's, oh, I'm not sure if I can afford the road tax or not. You know, it's just a, if, you, if you're going for a car, you, you know you've got to pay it. But if you make that a prohibitive number, people then start to really consider it in their, in their thought process. Um, or you have some sort of road user charging thing. Um, which, you know, you could have a national road user charging policy, which charges people per mile. They go anywhere, be it on a local network, be it on a strategic road network, whatever. But, you know, black boxes in cars or, you know, something more modern than that, which is just using data that's already there, but um, enforceable somehow, that says for every mile you travel using a car, you're going to pay for it. And, those are then the kind of things which really make people think about, uh, okay, if I get in a bus, it is more affordable to me. If I get on a train, it is more affordable. And that's really what, you know, it does, affordability really does influence people's decision-making in transport. So those kind of things, are, I, I don't know what will play out as the winner, but um, I think those kind of things will happen. Yeah. Um how exactly do you collect the data and, and use it in your in your projects and in your work? I mean, so we are always kind of um, secondary users of of data. So um, there are a number of companies that um, collect collect data. So there's, I mean, there's a huge range of sources. So um, I suppose the generic term would be floating vehicle data for information that is collected from black boxes or mobile phones and that those kind of movements. Um, and there's, you know, several companies that basically have license agreements with, you know, the mobile companies or whatever to be able to harvest that information from people's phones and use it for, you know, transport related solutions. So there's that kind of stuff, but there's a huge amount of hard infrastructure out there, which captures travel movements as well. So, detection systems in cities on motorways so traditionally they've all been kind of loop based detectors that are installed in the road surface and inductive or 
piezometric kind of solutions that you know either just count cars or tell you their speed as well and things like that they'll all go back to central processing units held by the local authority or the you know the the transport authority that um, like highways england so there's a lot of data from those kind of things there's radar that measures what's going on and counts traffic there's automatic number plate recognition cameras out there which capture more journey-based information, I suppose, and usually go along with enforcement systems so that you can tell, um, you know, who's made a journey and charge them for it if they're in a charging zone, that kind of thing. So uh, all of those things tend to be systems which are held by local transport authorities in big control centres and things like that. So, but there's not there's not really nationally very many sharing agreements in place so um they all tend to just hold them by themselves and until we started this piece of work with dft and started to collating it and everybody saw the the common need to track what was going on during covid there was a kind of a niceness to the industry that was like you know okay we will share our data for a bit there's no reason to keep it to ourselves but i think that's all got to be formalized going forward you know out of pandemic People need to still share that data, but in a more controlled, regimented way. Um, but yeah, a lot of it—a lot of it—comes from just hard infrastructure and uh, you know detection systems. What do you think the uh, the key benefits of of pe- the sort of tangible benefits of people sharing that data will be? Um. Well, so the the more data that we get, the more we know about what's going on on our networks. But the most important thing, I suppose, is then translating that into um, information that people can use to inform what what they do with their journeys. So, I mean, we we all know that we get you know we get Google Maps, um, plan a route, and it tells you where is congested or not. And things like that, and that kind of information is stuff that just influences the way you behave, isn't it? And I think, I mean, that that's that's key to me is is uh, having solutions in place that really influence people's behaviour and make their decision making easy for them. So Google Maps is great because you know it it will tell you where the problems are, but it will also suggest alternative things you could be doing so it automatically tells you how long your journey is going to take if you get the train and that's usually like 10 times as long or something even with congestion so you're like oh that's rubbish but you know in time it could well get a lot better so i think those kind of things are really good for giving people information i think you know that all that personalized kind of journey information is probably what makes the most difference to people um so yeah aside i think i think that's in essence, what you know, what we need to do is just get get the data to people when they make the let them make their own minds up what they do, but try and influence them to be more sustainable, share transport more, make the right decisions based on based on what's right for the you know for everyone rather than what's just right for them, and that's where we all end up being a bit selfish. We did a we did a piece of work wrote a paper about convenience in transport, which I'm not sure we really drew any 
massive conclusions from it, but it was interesting to to think about how we define convenience in transport um, and all of the historical metrics of convenience are you know things like comfort, speed, environment, you know things that you'd naturally you know align with convenience, but the one thing that it didn't really include and we suggested should be included when you look at convenience in transport is health and um, if you start to mix health into the convenience angle I think you come up with some different conclusions about what is truly convenient so we all know we gave up plastic bags they were ultimately convenient you could just go and snatch a plastic bag at a supermarket you know that's that's the most convenient thing to do rather than carry a bag with me. But somebody then said, that's really bad for the environment and you're going to pay 10p for that bag. So now I carry a Hessian bag and fill that up every time. And that now feels as convenient to me as, you know, the, the plastic bag because actually getting rid of the plastic bag was a pain and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of redefining what we mean by convenience. In transport, if we were to say, you know, give people more information about their journeys and say, did you know that by driving your car all by yourself today, you, you know, your emissions were this, and that effectively means, you know, 50 trees need planting, or, you know, you choked your neighbor to death, or, you know, something like that. Some some more impassioning, impassionate kind of things, you know, to, to influence behavior. I think there's still stuff we could do on that from a data front to you know, to and I know there are some some apps and things that do that kind of thing already, but um, yeah, th- there's more to do in influencing people. Do you think carbon taxes are um, something that's going to be on the horizon? Uh, yeah, I can't see any way around it. To be honest, I mean, it's, it comes back to the point about um, you know penalties are pretty much the the thing which drive most of us. You know, we, we like to. You know, we like to talk about engineering solutions in terms of, you know, we educate people and we, you know, we could do good engineering solutions, et cetera, et cetera. But there's the five E's of engineering, which you always forget, but education, engineering. No, I'm going to forget the rest, but the, the one, the important one is enforcement, I suppose. And everybody says, got to go, you know, originally it was like enforcement's the last, the last thing. And it is the last thing. But it's usually, sadly, the one that works. You know, if you penalise somebody for doing something you don't want them to do, then they tend not to do it. <laughs> so I do. Yeah, I think that's. I think carbon's carbon taxes are bound to be the answer in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, we're we're almost out of time. But um, before we finish, just a, a few shorter questions. Um, so the first thing is, if you had to sum up your your work and your your working life in three words, what would they be? Three words. Um, uh, cha- changeable. So I don't think it ever stays the same in our industry. Um, rewarding. I think because we do do quite a few things that have immediate impacts on networks, which is good. Um, 
third word. Um, something like growing, I suppose. So, I mean, it, the importance of our bit of the the industry has really cranked up over the last fifteen years or so, and it does feel like an exciting place to, you know, to work. Yeah, and um, where do you where do you want sort of to be in ten years? Or the world, your company, or the world in general. It's, it's well. I mean, I mean, from from my perspective, I think it's you know we've got to make the sort of um, the twenty thirty and twenty fifty um, targets for zero carbon, and you know all the initiatives that go along with it. We've got to make those happen. Otherwise, you know, we're living on a very much smaller island that has you know seen sea levels rise by whatever you know and and fundamentally we've all got to look after the planet so i think um i mean our company has put sustainability at the heart of strategy it's the first thing that we have to consider when we're looking at work what are we going to try and win where are we going to try and work has it got does it tick the sustainability box and i think that's a great start um so i mean for me i'd love to see um at the end of my career in 20 years, if I can be bothered to work that long, hopefully. Mm. Uh, by the end of that, I'd love to see a real shift to less car travel, more multimodal travel, cities that work, cities that, you know, if a city is carless, now that would be that would be awesome. If we could get to a point where we have no cars, only deliveries and you know, everybody else is using micromobility, active travel or autonomous vehicles. I think they'll be a lot safer. They'll be a lot greener and that'd be great. So I suppose that's, that's where, you know, I'd like, I'd like things to be in 15, 20 years. It's a bit unrealistic, I think, but. Well, thank you, Alistair, for coming on our podcast. It's been a pleasure. Um, and hopefully we can all look forward to a carless city future. That would be great. Yep. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Nice one. Cheers. If you enjoyed this week's episode of Ingenious, please subscribe and share the podcast with friends. We'd also love to hear your feedback. To get in touch or find out more about us and our guests, head to ingeniouspod.org. Music for our episodes is kindly provided by Yemzo Katana. Check him out on SoundCloud.